0: Thank you so much for so many of you praying for me last week. Um, I am happy to report that 12 hours in an emergency room is not fun. (laughs) Thank you for praying for me. I also want to say thank you to the other elders, to Justin in particular, for filling in so ably and preaching God's word to us. Friends, that's the benefit of a plurality of elders uh, that we have number of pastors who are able to minister to us and care for us through the preaching of God's word. So thank you brothers, for being a means of grace to me. Uh, it was an encouragement last week. I'm glad to be back with you. If you've got a copy of your God's word, uh, copy of God's word, open to John chapter 11. Uh, John chapter 11. We're going to finish chapter 11 and then start chapter 12. So John 11:45 down to verse 11 in chapter 12. 11.45 to 12.11. If you would, please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 45 of John 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come at all to the feast? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us now. We pray for illumination from the Holy Spirit. We pray, God, that our minds would be clear, that we would be able to focus for just these few brief moments on what you have revealed concerning your Son, Jesus Christ, and that the result would be in our hearts, faith, obedience, and love to you, Father. Please help us this morning. We pray that there would be no unfruitful hearing of the Word of God, but instead that we would be both hearers and doers by faith, so that you are pleased and your church is built up. Father, please keep me from error. Please grant all of your people discernment. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, our passage today is a prelude to the passion of Christ. A prelude, as you know, is an event or an action that introduces something of greater significance. And that's how these verses function in the Gospel of John. These verses point us ahead to what is surely the most significant act in human history. The death and resurrection of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. You get a sense of that prelude when you notice how the theme of Jesus' death runs through the entire passage. The theme of Jesus' death. It's from start to finish. The Jewish Sanhedrin, at the end of chapter 11, determined to put Jesus to death. Mary, at the start of chapter 12, anoints Jesus for his burial. Judas, in contrast to Mary, plots to betray Jesus to his death. And even Lazarus, The friend whom Jesus raised from the dead has a price put on his head. It seems that disciples of the crucified Christ will also face death themselves. So you can trace the theme through all of the verses. From the end of chapter 11 into chapter 12. This is the consistent theme. It's the theme of Jesus' death. This passage is a prelude to the passion. And yet, This theme of Jesus' death is not always presented from the same perspective. In fact, as you read the text, it becomes clear that Jesus' death is being pursued on two different levels. Or, we, we might say, with two different purposes. The first and clearest purpose is the wicked human one. Caiaphas, the Pharisees, Judas... They wickedly plot Jesus' death. Even though they've seen his signs, which are undeniable, they reject him. In their view, Jesus must die. That's their purpose in this passage. They plot to kill the Lord of glory. But the second purpose, the second purpose is deeper and more significant. That second purpose is behind and greater than the wicked human purpose, and that second purpose is the purpose of God. The purpose of God. It's true that Jesus will die, but his death is not in vain. Through Christ's death, God will gather all of his people, even from the ends of the earth. That purpose cannot be stopped. It is deeper and stronger than the wicked purpose of man. So the right way to read this passage, the right way to read this passage is to ask: Through whose eyes do I see the death of Christ? Through whose eyes do I see the death of Christ? Do I see with the eyes of Caiaphas and Judas, who believe that serving self leads to salvation, or or do I see through the eyes of Mary, who understands that Jesus alone? is worthy of her devotion, her love, and her faith. That's how we have to approach this passage. Not simply as history, it is history, but also personally. Do I understand the purpose of God in the death of Christ? Through whose eyes do I see things? In terms of an outline, we're going to utilize that theme of Jesus' death to give us our structure. If this passage is a prelude To the passion, then the prelude has three scenes. Three scenes. The first focuses on the purpose for Jesus' death, the second describes the preparation, and the third calls us to participation. Three scenes from this prelude to Jesus' passion. That's where we're headed, and I hope you'll be encouraged. Let's begin then at the end of chapter 11 verses 45 to 54 where we see the divine purpose for Jesus' death. That's the first scene, the divine purpose for Jesus' death. We quickly get a sense of the differing responses to Jesus as the passage opens. Verse 45 describes how after the raising of Lazarus a number of Jews believed in the Lord. John doesn't comment on the depth of this faith Or the genuineness of it. But it's significant nonetheless that some believe. Some people believe in Jesus. At the same time, verse 46 gives the other response. Witnesses report back to the Pharisees that Jesus raised someone from the dead. Again, John doesn't tell us the motive behind these witnesses who who run to tell the Pharisees. But the mention of the Pharisees alone changes the entire tone of the scene. The Pharisees have consistently opposed Jesus, and now they're going to oppose him even more. Notice what John describes. Verse 47, the Pharisees gather the Sanhedrin together. This was the religious ruling council of the nation of Israel, which means these are the people that have the most to lose from folks following Jesus. And that desire to protect their own position comes out in their question. Listen to their question, verse 47. What are we to do, they ask? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are we to do? If you think about it, that's an unnecessary question, isn't it? Jesus has already told them what to do. Believe in him. In fact, God has told the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin what to do. Jesus' signs are the divine attestation of Jesus' ministry. The raising of Lazarus was like God's megaphone to these people saying, This is my son. Believe in him. What are we to do? He already told you. But the Pharisees refused to see. They ask this unnecessary question because they don't love the truth. They don't love the truth. For all of their grandstanding and loud-mouthing, they don't love the truth. They love themselves. Notice their biggest concern, verse 48. If Jesus' following grows much more, then the Romans may come and take away the religious leader's power. The Romans might even put a stop to the temple worship in Jerusalem, which would severely limit the influence of the chief priests. So they might sound like they're concerned for the nation, but they're really just concerned for themselves. The religious leaders are concerned how a crackdown would affect them, how it would limit their authority and their influence. And so, blinded by self, blinded by self, the Pharisees can't see the answer to their unnecessary question. They ought to believe in Jesus. At this point, John introduces a new character... In the narrative, Caiaphas, the high priest, is introduced. He speaks for the first time, and he'll figure prominently in the death of Christ. Caiaphas speaks, and in verse 49, his counsel is as ruthless as it is wicked. Listen again, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Friends, that's some cold-hearted pragmatism from a supposedly pious leader. Caiaphas is not confused at all as to to what they should do. The answer is very clear to Caiaphas. Jesus absolutely must be eliminated. Kill him, Caiaphas says. It's not that hard. It's better for one man to die, so kill him. That's what Caiaphas says. If you kill Jesus, then the nation will be spared. Now, of course, in sparing the nation, who else is also spared? Caiaphas. Caiaphas' position is spared. The Pharisees' authority is spared. That's the true motive here. This is not pious religious concern. This is stone-cold self-preservation. Now, if we were writing the story of Jesus' life, sometimes I like to imagine how I would write it, just so that I understand that God's version is way better than mine. If we were writing the story of Jesus' life at this point, we might pick this spot as the time when God strikes down the wicked. This seems like a good spot to me. If I were writing this after verse 50, the heavens would open and God would rain down judgment. But thankfully, God writes the history of Jesus' life, not us. And God's purpose is far better and far more certain than anything we could conceive. In verse 51, John interprets Caiaphas through the lens of God's purpose. Look at verse 51. This is from the Apostle John. He's telling you how to understand this. Verse 51, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In John's gospel, people often speak better than they know. They speak better than they know. And and Caiaphas may be the supreme example of that. Jesus will die just as Caiaphas plans. And Jesus' death will save the people of God. Just as Caiaphas claims. But that salvation is far greater than what Caiaphas realizes. Caiaphas tells the truth even if he speaks better than he knows. You see, Caiaphas thinks in political terms, but God is operating on redemptive terms. Jesus will die. But he will die as the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the people of God. Through Jesus' blood, God's people will be saved. But not from the Romans. They're not going to be saved from the Romans. They will be saved from sin and death and hell. Caiaphas plots to kill the Son of God. And in his plotting, God works. To carry out his substitutionary atoning death of his Son. But the prophetic insight goes a little deeper. Goes a little deeper. Christ's substitutionary atonement will gather together all the people of God. All of them. Even those scattered throughout the world. Early Jewish readers of John's gospel would have thought here of how Israel was scattered through exile. Scattered across the nations. That's how an early reader of John might have thought of this. But John's point is actually bigger than that. Verse 50 in John 11 anticipates the Gentile mission of the church. Who are the, those scattered abroad? Ultimately, the Gentiles. Or to make it more personal, you and me. Verse 50 anticipates the Gentile mission of the church. So try to, try to fathom here what's happening. Caiaphas' ruthless plot will be God's means of accomplishing his global purposes. Because the Pharisees killed Jesus, God will gather together people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. As they hear the gospel, believe, and are saved. Through Jesus' death, God will gather for himself a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And through that people, through that people, the church, through that people, the gospel will spread to the ends of the earth. Caiaphas is wicked, and in and through the wickedness, God is doing what he determines to do. I don't want you to miss the contrast at work between those two things. It's really a contrast between two peoples. It's really a contrast between two peoples. One people, one people represented by the Pharisees and Caiaphas, are spiritually bankrupt and cut off from the promises of God. But the other people are different. God, according to his purpose, will gather to himself a new people. Founded upon a new covenant. Inaugurated through the blood of a faithful high priest. Not a wicked high priest like Caiaphas. It's a contrast of two peoples. One people bankrupt. Another people new. And defined by Jesus. The old will pass away. And this new people founded upon Christ. Will be gathered in to the one family of God. In fact, this is. This is fascinating to me. Notice how the scene ends. Notice how scene one ends. Verse 53 and verse 54. Verse 53, the Sanhedrin are plotting in Jerusalem. While verse 54, Jesus is in the wilderness doing what? Gathering to himself a new people. The wilderness in the Bible is sometimes a place of desolation. But the wilderness in the Bible is also sometimes a place of renewal. And new beginnings. That's the sense here. Verse 53, the leaders plot in Jerusalem. But verse 54, Jesus is gathering to himself a new people of God. Jerusalem is bankrupt. The religious leaders are corrupt. But in the wilderness, Jesus continues to gather his people, his disciples, those who will receive the new covenant forged in his blood, the blood of a faithful high priest, So Caiaphas can plot all he wants. He can plot all he wants, but the purpose of God will not be stopped. And that's the important takeaway for us from this first scene. That's the important takeaway for us, particularly as those who have been saved by God's global gospel purpose. We ought to marvel here at the wisdom of God. Sometimes there's a misconception when it comes to sermon application that application is always something you ought to do. Sometimes the application is something you ought to be. And here we ought to marvel. We ought to be stunned at the wisdom of God. We ought to pause in silent reverence in verse 44, even with a bit of trembling in our worship. In his sovereign providence, God uses human wickedness to accomplish his purpose in Christ. I know some of you think, how could God do that? How can he use wickedness? I don't know, but he's God. (laughs) And all that he determines is right and good. Caiaphas, of all people, testifies to the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We ought to just pause here in reverent worship that God, God, would so work that even the evil scheming, Of humanity would accomplish his will. It's just like what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50. Caiaphas means evil against the Son of God. But God means it for good. That many people, even many Gentiles, would be saved. Friends, this ought to be a great comfort to us. This scene with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin is the church's history in miniature. Caiaphas represents the worst of human wickedness. The Sanhedrin remind us of how the world will continue to plot against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. This is the darkest hour of human depravity. And yet, through this very same dark hour, the light of the world shines most brightly. Through this very same sinister scheme, the glory of God is revealed most clearly in the resurrected face of Jesus Christ. So make the application to you and me. Caiaphas is the world in miniature. If Caiaphas could not derail God's purpose, then let us not be afraid of what the world marshals against us. Amen? In a sense, the world has already done its worst. And all that the worst accomplished was the fulfillment of God's purpose for his son. And therefore, let us not fear. Far, far too much of what passes as ministry in our day is fear wrapped up in Christian-sounding language. Let us not be people who are marked by fear. We have nothing to fear. The world has already done its worst and all that the worst accomplished was to fulfill the purpose of God. Let us not fear. God's purpose will stand. That's scene number one. Let's move now from purpose to preparation. Scene number two. Running from chapter eleven fifty-five 55 to chapter 12, verse 8. Scene number two shows us Devoted preparation for Jesus' death. Devoted preparation for Jesus' death. The end of chapter 11 describes the heightened atmosphere of Jerusalem. People are coming to prepare for Passover. They have to purify themselves in order to participate in the celebration. And as they come to the temple, the crowds of people are wondering if Jesus will come. The, the excitement is high. It's palpable. And the Pharisees' scheming adds to the excitement. Look at verse 57. They put out a call for informants. If anyone sees Jesus, then they ought to turn him in. Now the verses there at the end of chapter 11 establish the setting. And the key point here is the Passover. The Passover. This was the annual commemoration of God's Deliverance of his people from Egyptian bondage. The Passover lamb was killed with the blood spread upon the doorposts of every Israelite home. The Passover lamb died so that God's people would live. And that adds to the sense of expectation. At least it should for us as we read John's gospel. The setting of Passover adds to the sense of expectation. Expectation. Do you remember Jesus' first public appearance in the Gospel of John? It occurred in chapter 1 with John the Baptist. It was the first time Jesus appeared in public. And do you remember what John the Baptist called Jesus in his first public appearance? John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So, this sense of expectation has been building to chapter 1 and the setting of Passover tells you that something significant is happening. And in that significant setting with so many expectations, Jesus returns to his friends in Bethany. A new chapter begins as we move from 11 to 12, but that same sense of expectation remains In the air. Notice verse 1 of chapter 12, and look how John links the two sections. Verse 1: Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has come to prepare for a greater Passover. Now, he's not come to prepare by purifying himself, he's the spotless Lamb of God, he needs no purification. Jesus has come to prepare for his death and for his burial. And that preparation is carried out by one of the most important characters in the Gospel of John. Mary, the sister of Lazarus. I love Mary. The family hosts a dinner for Jesus. And it's with all of that expectation of the Passover and the religious leaders plotting, and the Lamb of God. It's with all of that expectation that Mary rises to anoint the Lamb of God. Look at verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We're going to camp out on this verse for a minute because it's very significant in the course of John's gospel. But before we we think about Mary's act, I just want to acknowledge that there are a lot of questions about how this event in John relates to the other events in the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Is the anointing in John the same as the anointing in Matthew and Mark? It's almost certainly not the same as the anointing in Luke. But but the question about John's relationship to Matthew and Mark is a bit different. I'm aware of those questions, and I'm not going to spend any time answering them. If you would like to know more about that, feel free to find me afterwards. We can chat. I can give you some good resources to read. But one of my convictions in studying the Gospels is that you want to study each Gospel on its own terms. So we want to figure out what John's emphasis is in including this act from Mary. What should stand out to us from Mary's anointing of Jesus? There are several points that we ought to note. To begin with, we ought to note Mary's devotion. We ought to note her devotion. This was a very expensive act, an incredibly expensive act. This amount of perfume was probably a family heirloom passed down from one generation to, the, to another, and it was likely far more than a year's salary. And, and Mary gladly spends this expensive family heirloom on Jesus. Why would she do that? Because she's devoted to the Lord. Her life is oriented towards Him. And in that devotion, when your life is oriented towards the Lord, the things of this world take on a different value, don't they? What better way what better way to spend this luxury than on Jesus? So we should note Mary's devotion. Along with devotion, we ought to note Mary's humility. We ought to note her humility. She anoints Jesus' feet, which would have been pointing away from the table as they reclined there for supper. Caring for a person's feet was the servant's job. It certainly was not the job of a dignified hostess. It's likely that Mary was, was well off considering the value of the, the, the ointment that she just poured out on Jesus. So she's a dignified woman of some social standing and yet here she is anointing Jesus' feet, doing the servant's job. Why would she do that? Why would she do such a thing? Because she's humble and willing to serve the Lord no matter how it appears in other people's eyes. We shouldn't underestimate the humility. I'm going I'm to steal some of the thunder from John chapter 13 in a couple of weeks. But do you know who else cares for people's feet in John's gospel? Jesus does. Jesus does. He washes his disciples' feet. An act that is so shocking, his disciples don't understand it. They don't fully understand that humility must mark those who follow Jesus. But Mary understands. Mary understands. Her humility here is an essential ingredient to discipleship. Devotion, humility, finally we ought to note Mary's love. We ought to note her love. She uses her hair to to wipe Jesus' feet. Jewish women typically wouldn't wear their hair down in public. Mary wears her hair down and she uses it to clean up the Lord's feet. Why would she do that? Because that's how close she is to the Lord Jesus. She loves him. She loves him. Her devotion, her humility, it's all rooted in love. Sadly, sadly, contemporary retellings of this scene twist Mary's love into something that's foreign to the Bible, as though there were some kind of romantic connection between Jesus and Mary. But friends, that mindset says more about our culture than it does about the Bible. There's nothing inappropriate in verse 3. Rather, John wants us to understand how deep the bond is between Mary and Jesus, between disciple and Lord. Mary loves the Lord. Disciples love the Lord. So note the picture that Mary gives us of discipleship. It's really one of the more important pictures of discipleship in John's gospel. How could we describe Mary? She is compelled by love to serve Jesus Christ. That's how you could describe her. She is compelled by love to serve Jesus Christ. Friends, that's a wonderful definition of discipleship. Compelled by love, we serve the Lord. Tragically, the scene takes another turn in verse 4. Not everyone shares Mary's love. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Christ, speaks up, and he has a very sensible complaint to make about this excessive devotion. Look at Judas's complaint, verse 5. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That sounds very sensible, doesn't it? A valuable resource should always be used to do the most good. I mean, you can almost see Judas wagging his finger. It's a very sensible suggestion. It sounds very pious. Why don't we care for more people, Jesus? But John quickly tells us in verse 6 that Judas is anything but pious, he's a thief. He steals from the group's resources to serve himself. That's why he wanted the ointment sold, because it would put more money in the bag, money that Judas could pilfer for himself. Judas doesn't care about the poor. He only cares about himself. Knowing this, Jesus corrects Judas in verse 7. Actually, it's more accurate to say that Jesus commends Mary. He doesn't so much correct Judas as he commends Mary. Mary, unlike Judas, has understood the significance of who Jesus is. So listen to Jesus' commendation verse 7. Jesus said leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you but you do not always have me. You remember earlier we said that Caiaphas speaks better than he knows. Now Jesus tells us in verse 7 that Mary acts better than she knows. Her Anointing of Jesus is preparation for his burial. Jesus knows what he will face in Jerusalem. And he interprets Mary's devotion in light of what is coming. She anoints him for the tomb. Now, does Mary know that Jesus will die for the salvation of his people? No. She still needs the revelation of Jesus' death and resurrection to see the full significance of who he is. But even still, even still, Mary does respond to what she knows that Jesus is worthy of her devotion, worthy of her service. She responds to the revelation that she has received, and therefore she trusts the Lord, and Jesus commends her. This is precisely where Judas goes wrong. Judas does not understand who Jesus is. If you need any more proof, That full understanding of Christ is a gift of the Holy Spirit, Judas. Who spent the whole earthly ministry with Jesus and didn't understand anything about him. Judas doesn't understand who Jesus is. And Judas doesn't understand that the time for honoring Jesus is now. This is what Jesus means in verse 8 when he says, You will always have the poor with you. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 15. Jesus is quoting the Bible. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 15 about how the need to care for the least of these will always be present. As long as human time continues, there will be human poverty and needs that have to be dealt with. Jesus is not denying that need. Rather, his point is that Judas should interpret the times. Judas should understand that the time is coming for Jesus to depart, which means the time to honor Jesus is now. You'll always have the poor care for them after my resurrection. Now's the time to honor me. Mary understands the time. Judas does not. So, we ought to note the contrast that John is giving us here between the faithful Mary and the treacherous Judas. John has been building this contrast. He wants you to pay attention to it. Earlier, we summarized Mary as being compelled by love To serve Christ. That was our summary of Mary. Now let's summarize Judas by way of contrast. Judas is controlled by self and therefore opposes Christ. Mary, compelled by love to serve. Judas, controlled by self and therefore opposes the Lord. Listen, we don't know, humanly speaking, what pushed Judas over the edge to betray Jesus I mean, yes, it was sin controlling Jesus' heart. That's true. But at this point, friends, I want you to notice, I want you to notice, how is that sin being manifested in Judas's life? As love for self. Selfishness. He wants the money for him, because he's a thief. And ultimately, that's why he betrays the Lord. Love for self. He wants the money. What does he betray Jesus for? Money. Selfishness, listen to me, selfishness, in other words, is the great enemy of devoted discipleship. How do you get to be like Judas and not be like Mary? You love yourself. Selfishness is the great enemy of devoted discipleship. That's one of the takeaways from this scene. Mary's regard is for Jesus and therefore she serves him. Love for Christ compels her forward to serve. Humility before Christ compels her forward in faithfulness. Judas is the opposite. Love for self leads him to betray the Lord. Listen, we can't emulate Mary's devotion. We we do not have the privilege of walking with Jesus in the flesh, at least not yet. Come, Lord Jesus. We can't emulate Mary's act, but we can learn from her example Devotion, devoted discipleship thrives on humility that's rooted in love. And if we're going to learn from Mary's example, then we have to catch Judas's warning too. Love for self will destroy you. Living for self, getting what you want will destroy you. Mary's the example. And her preparation calls us to the same kind of devoted discipleship as she displays. Let's keep going. And let's finish with the third scene from this prelude to the Passion. That was scene number two, preparation. Now let's finish with the third. Verses 9 to 11 in chapter 12. Here we see a disciple's participation in Jesus' death. A disciple's participation in Jesus' death. That statement, participation in Jesus' death, might sound odd to you. So let me explain what I mean. Look down at verse 11 in chapter 12 and notice the reference to many of the Jews going away to believe in Jesus. Do you see that, verse 11? That's also how the passage began, Remember? back in verse 45 of chapter 11. So this positive response to Jesus bookends the passage. Verse 45, chapter 11. Verse 11, chapter 12. Both of those verses say many of the Jews were going away to believe in Jesus. So the response, it's similar. It's like a pair of bookends on the passage. But the similarity doesn't stop there. How did the Pharisees respond At the beginning, in chapter 11, when people were believing in Jesus, well, they determined to put Jesus to death. Here in chapter 12, how do the chief priests respond to people believing in Jesus? By determining to put Lazarus to death. Look at verse 10, chapter 12. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Lazarus, it seems, has become a touchstone for people to believe in Jesus. And we understand why. Lazarus was dead and then he wasn't. And Jesus was the reason why. So Lazarus' life is the reason that people are coming to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's precisely why the chief priests decide on the same course of action. Lazarus and Jesus are connected. Because of his connection to Jesus, Lazarus too should be eliminated. By following the Lord, Lazarus now faces suffering with the Lord. Now, of course, Lazarus' suffering is not redemptive. Lazarus is not making atonement for anyone, not even for himself. Lazarus is not going to inaugurate a new covenant in his blood. That's not what I mean by saying Lazarus participates in Jesus' death. Rather, my point is to highlight for you that discipleship, That's just a fancy word for saying follow Jesus. Following Jesus necessarily involves sharing in Christ's sufferings. Necessarily involves sharing in Christ's sufferings. If anyone would come after Jesus, let him take up the cross and follow by faith. To be a disciple is to participate in the death of Christ even to the point of sharing in his sufferings. In a way then, the death threat against Lazarus is a reminder of the disciples' road. We said that Caiaphas' opposition was the world in miniature. Lazarus' death threat is discipleship in, minister, in miniature. How's that for an, some encouragement on Sunday morning? We follow a crucified Christ, so we take up the cross as well. We follow the man of sorrows, so we know that suffering and hardship will come. We belong to the rejected Messiah, so we understand that the world will reject us too. What Lazarus experiences is a picture of discipleship in a fallen world. And yet we can't end on that point, can we? We can't end on that point. It's true that we follow the crucified Christ, but what did we just learn about Jesus in John chapter 11? That he is the resurrection and the life. The one who was crucified is now the one who lives and reigns. Again, Lazarus himself is our reminder. Lazarus has experienced to some degree the power of Christ over death. So for all of the people to picture for us what it means to follow Jesus, Lazarus is a prime illustration. This little family in Bethany is teaching you how to follow the Lord. Mary and Lazarus. Lazarus shares in the prospect of suffering just as Jesus did. And Lazarus reminds us that not even death can stop Christ from calling his people to himself. It's a nice bookend on the passage that the purpose of God will stand. So let's conclude with the question that we considered at the outset. Through whose eyes do do you see the death of Christ? Do you and I understand the purpose behind Christ's death? Do we understand that love for self always leads to death? Just as it did for Caiaphas and Judas. And do we see that love for Christ leads us deeper in faith, in devotion, in humility? Through whose eyes do you see? Now friends, I pray that you see with the eyes of faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please bear fruit from your word. Unless you build the house, Father, those who labor, labor in vain. And so we we appeal to you now. We appeal to you, Father, that the Holy Spirit would take, would take your word and plant it deep within our hearts and bear fruit, God. Fruit in devotion, fruit in humility, fruit in love. That it would bear fruit in leading us away from love for self, and that it would drive us deeper in love for Christ. Father, please bless the preaching of your word and may it bear fruit to the glory of Christ's name. And in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand and we'll respond in song together.